This is Beyond Busy. I'm Graham Alcott. I'm the author of a number of books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja, and I'm the founder of Think Productive. We work with some of the world's leading companies to help them get stuff done, but more importantly, to help their people to make space for what matters. Beyond Busy is where I explore the often messy truths and contradictory relationships around topics like work-life balance, happiness and success, and explore with interesting people what makes them tick. In short, this is where we ask the bigger questions about work. My guest today is Nick Gold. Nick is Chief Executive of Speakers Corner, a speaking agency that lists everyone from Bill Clinton to Malala Yousafzai to Steve Wozniak. He's also the author of a new book, Speaking with Confidence, and he's spent years learning from the best in the world what makes a great speech or presentation. In this episode, we talk about glossophobia, the fear of public speaking and how to overcome it. I share some experiences from my own keynotes, good and bad, and Nick offers up his top tips for the next time you need to give a talk or presentation at work. This is Nick Gold. Are you? Yeah, very good, sir. How are you, Graham? Yeah, I'm good. Um, good. And where where are we speaking to you from? So I, I've actually come into my office. I have to be honest. Ah. Kind of, it's a it's a it's a big space, and we've got kind of got a meeting room which we've converted into like a studio. Um, as soon as it happens, and so it's nice and empty and quiet, and um, means I can get away from my yapping dogs at home, which is very, <laughs> always nice. And are so, you in London? I'm in London, based in London, based in North London. I, I, I ride a little moped and I'm kind of, it takes me five minutes now to get from home to the office. Um, nice. And yeah, you know, something I do maybe once a week, maybe twice a week. And it's kind of, it's, it's nice to be in a different space. Um, when I lived in London, I used to, I had a vest for myself and that was how I'd um, sort of dart about London from Whitechapel where I lived to, often to... Uh, King's Cross, where I was doing a lot of work and, and various other places. And I always remember like going up places like Old Street and realizing that there's a fair chance that I could die if I do this for too long. So, uh, and now when I think about London, I kind of think that the roads are more hazardous, but um, do you manage to keep yourself safe when you're riding around? I do. I have been knocked off, but um, I got back on because I, I'm a, it's, a, it's a best way to get around London. Like it changes. It, I when I got on it the first time, I realised that it meant I wasn't planning a whole morning around one meeting. I could get, I could basically yeah, get anywhere in London yeah. in, in twenty minutes. And that's and I drive. I think if if I was listening, if I was twenty years younger, I'm not sure I'd trust myself on it. But I got on my I got on my little moped now about seven years ago, and I drive safely. And I just kind of it's freedom. It's not going in the underground, and it's not driving a big car and. Um, I, what's interesting is when I had the when I had when I got knocked off, I used to be a keen cyclist. I can't and the one and I got back on my moped immediately, but I can't get back on my bike in London. Oh, um, really? And I think that's because when I drive a moped, irrelevant in the middle of summer when it's thirty degrees, um, I would still wear my my big jacket and my full face helmet. Um, yeah. Whereas actually, and I, whereas I look at the cyclists and you've got little and you've got a little helmet on, and you're just wearing normal clothes, and you're like, and I, I get worried. But that's true. I'm, I'm that's not. True. I'm not. Do, I'm not here to to preach about how people should get around London at all. But. <laughs> but I do think it's like you know the thing with London is parking is a nightmare wherever you go. If you can find a spot, then you know you, you've worked a miracle, and then you've got to pay for it. Whereas with the thing that's underrated about motorbikes and mopeds and stuff is in most parts of London you can just 
find somewhere to park for free and there's dedicated bays and it's just it's a very nimble stealthy way to get around i think it, it blew my mind when you first get on it you suddenly realize on every other corner there's a space for these for these motorbikes mopeds and you realize yeah. you kind of you just need to and you're just much more aware it's amazing how much better i know london because i've got my eyes open when you're in a car you're kind of very focused and you might just be looking at your sat nav and when you're walking you are aware of the surroundings but you're just kind of aware of the immediate surroundings but as, as on, a, on a moped or a motorbike you actually take in everything and I, I i do sense i do have a get get a sense of freedom from it um yeah yeah and i hadn't lived in london that long before i started on the vespa and what it taught me is how close together lots of bits of london are like when you look on the tube map and when you travel on the tube you just you think of these places as being all really well spaced out and far away from each other, but you know when when you when you do it on a bike and you go oh like Old Street is just down the road from you know London Bridge like it it it, it suddenly sort of makes London feel smaller and more connected yeah. somehow. I, I completely agree. So did you, yeah. while you were on it, you enjoyed it, you enjoyed riding it. It was only afterwards you kind of you look back now and it's like that was crazy of me. That's it. Yeah, I mean, I've probably had a few near misses because it's not so much my riding. I'm worried about me yeah. riding safely. It's all the lunatics. Isn't yeah, exactly. it? That's you, you, how I feel. Like, you're, 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 the, you're the dream. You would never do anything crazy. Whereas just everyone else. <laughs> I'm completely, completely agreement with you on that one. Um, so we're going to talk um, firstly about your book and and then just about speaking. So you've got this book called Speaking with Confidence. Absolutely. Um, which is someone who does a fair amount of speaking myself. I really enjoyed. Thank you. Um, and your business is um, Speakers Corner. You're the, you're the MD of Speakers Corner and um, and have been for a long time. So I suppose my first question is, how did you get into the whole area and the industry around business speakers? So, okay, so, so it's, it's a distant, distant memory. I've been doing it now for about 17, 18 years. But to be honest, I, I, was, I had a couple of companies in the first dot-com, um, the first dot-com boom and bust. And at the time, it was a lot of fun. And I realized I look back on it now and I was young and I was out there talking to people who'd been in retail, like senior people in retail who'd been in retail forever. And I was talking to them about the internet and they were hanging on to my every word. And I kind of, I look back on it now and realize actually one of the things about speaking is it's that confidence to deliver a message um, irrelevant of your audience that actually gave me the, because I knew what I was talking about. And these people who are much more experienced in retail knew stuff like that. But I got away with it because I, because I had this confidence about, I knew more than them about the world of the internet. But I had these couple yeah. of um, coms, which at, one, uh, um, which at one point were worth lots of money and then the crash happened and they were worth nothing. And I came out of it and realized that actually I was kind of, I didn't really know that much about business. I was just in this bubble and I really need to go work for a big company. So I went to work for a, I went to work for Centrica, FTSE 100 company, um, stepped in the door and I have nothing bad to say about the company apart from me, apart from the polite way of saying it, a big company was not for me. And I had lots of frustrations with the whole thing. Um, yeah. but I committed to spending a few kind of, I committed to spending three years there. I actually spent, ended up spending, I think four and a half. Um, but from the moment, from like two and a half years in, it was always, where's my next idea? I want, I need my next thing is I'm going to start a new company. I need that idea. Um, and actually my mother-in-law ran a entertainment business, um, and they're booking magicians and like caricaturists and things like that for weddings and parties. Um, and she noticed this rises with other thing, which was people saying they'd like someone to come and speak to their speak to their audience for twenty minutes at a wedding, or whatever it was. Yeah. And credit her at the time. What she realised was if you're booking a magician or you're booking a caricaturist, you don't really mind unless you're booking a big name person. Kind of, you don't mind who they are. What you just want is someone who can do magic tricks or someone who can do amazing little drawings. Um, 
But when you're talking about speakers, actually, you're interested in what they're talking about, how they're delivering it, and whether they, they would fit the audience that actually were, were listening to them. And she realized it was two different separate businesses. One almost was about churn, and the other one was about curation. So, mm. um, and at the time, I was I was helping her, because of my background, with her website. Um, and we were just talking one day, and as it happens, the story was she was um, – she had an inquiry because someone wanted a host for, I think it was Hairdresser of the Year Awards, and they were looking for a, an, an out-there comedian, something different, kind of a great host, but something a, um, a bit left field. And it was a time that Simon Amstel was on Pop World, for those people who are old enough to remember <laughs> on Channel 4. Um, and I turned to her and said, they want, and she was telling me about, oh, she's on the phone to the client, and, and put the phone to the client. She was like, oh, this is, I've suggested everyone I know, and this is not working. And I, and I said, they want Simon Amstel. And she said, I don't know who that is. I literally have no idea who you're talking about. And she picked yeah. up to her client and she said to them, listen, I've got my, uh, I've got my son-in-law here. He's doing my website for me, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah. He's made the suggestion of Simon Amstel, and they were like, this is the greatest idea ever. <laughs> and so, and um, she got off the phone and she said, clearly, kind of, you've got some gift for this, that, the other. Would you be interested in taking this on? Um, and that's where the idea came from. My kind of my brother, Tim, who's my partner in the business, joined me a few years later, and since then we've grown it. And I think, kind of, very much to your question about the business speakers, we very much we started in the after dinner and awards host space. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I always talk about two key events happening. The first event being TED um, and obviously the rise of TED and speakers appearing at TED and the fact that actually you got onto a tube in London and everyone had their smartphones and people would be watching um, these 17-minute these speeches of TED speakers came to a realisation that actually thought leadership and people who can deliver an amazing experience is the new rock and roll. And actually they became, kind of, they became, it kind of became quite a sexy thing to mm. to be discussing ideas and concepts from um, conv- from experience you've had listening to speakers, so that yeah. was the first thing that shifted us. And then the second thing that shifted us was the f- uh, uh, eleven years ago. Now the financial crisis happened, and we thought to ourselves, "All oh, the kind of companies are kind of recession, and it's going to be disastrous, and everything like that." But at, but what we actually saw coming out of recession, or even quite early in it, is companies realised that they needed to inspire, invigorate their staff and get them to think differently. And and the best way they can do that is by bringing external voices to talk to them and actually challenge what their thoughts processes are in, in order to improve the business, take the business forward. Mm. And, that, and that single period of time, we saw a massive growth and that shift for us away from away from the just straightforward awards hosting and afternoon, which we still do and happy to talk about that, but much more into this conference and business speak, speaking world. That's yeah, quite a long answer the, to a short question, but... No, I mean, there was, some, there was something um, quite interesting um, in the book where you were talking... I think, was it um, Jonathan McDonald, who's also been on this podcast before? Oh, fantastic. Well, it's lovely. To um, he was talking about how if a company's had a really hard year then often they'll run some kind of event for the staff, which is along the lines of, um, you know, we're celebrating you, we really value you. And part of the motivation behind that is we really need to put our arm around our, our you know, team and our key people and make sure that because this year has been really difficult, we don't want people jumping ship and yeah. moving off to competitors and stuff like that. And I think we had a similar thing actually with um, with our business, Think Productive, coming out of – so we were kind of born in – 2008 2009 mm. in the middle of that financial crash 
And our first assumption, which was totally wrong, was, well, this will all blow over quite quickly, won't it? It'll just be, <laughs> you know, I'll just be another little recession and fine. And obviously it went on and on. But I, I do think it's probably similar to you that quite quite early on in that period, even though people's budgets were slashed, there was an appetite for how can we sort of put our arm around our people and really help them, obviously, in our case, not just with productivity, but also with work-life balance and dealing with stress and resilience and those kind of key issues. And I think probably we'll end up in a similar place quite soon, right? In terms of, I think, I think there'll be an appetite for that stuff. I agree. I think, I think it's really interesting. I think one of the things we saw kind of in the financial crisis and also in various events kind of post-financial crisis, and I don't want to get into the world of politics or anything like that, but it was this understanding that when you have someone up on stage historically, and I think very much pre-2009, this is what was felt. If you get an economist up on stage, they are going to tell you what's going to happen from an economic perspective in the future. Um, and actually, almost the so-called experts, whatever they were, they were going to teach us by telling us what's going on. And I think this, the 2009 financial crisis, people started realising that People coming up on stage, they're going to give their credentials and, and you're going to respect and kind of understand where they're coming from. But their, their, their opinions are our opinions and they're not factually yeah. correct anymore. So what I want to do as a regular human being and kind of with my um, human quest for knowledge is I want to listen to that. I want to respect that. I want to take that on board. I want to get other opinions. And then I, from that, I can form my own opinion and make my own judgments. And it almost gave us as individuals – um, because it was such a kind of black swan event, um, it gave us the capacity to have confidence in the fact that we can have our own opinions rather than being told what to do as individuals. Yeah. And I think that's why the external speaker, the thought leader came up to be like, here's an idea. You do what you want with it and you use it either for yourself or your business or for whatever purpose, in whatever way you want to use it. But it is, it's an idea that I've come up with and you can interpret it as you see fit. There's no right or wrong way to use this. Yeah. And we're sort of talking about, you know, TED and uh, grand stuff like, like thought leadership here. But I suppose everybody is a thought leader and everywhere is a stage, right? So let's bring this back to the idea of speaking with confidence, yes. um, which is also the name of your book. And Let's think about this from some from the point of view of someone who has to get up and make a a speech or a talk. You know, let's say even just in front of a boardroom or a small team, and this is the kind of thing that gives people nerves, right? Like yes. there's, there's all those um, uh, you know, very well rehearsed uh, <laughs> statistics that I can't remember off the top of my head right now, but you know, to do with how people are more likely to fear getting up and speaking in public than dying and all that sort Absolutely. of thing. Absolutely. And it has its own word, glossophobia, which I'd, I'd not come across until seeing it in your book, actually. Um, so tell us why is speaking so scary and why are people so underconfident or unconfident about it? So it's all about perceptions, because ultimately, every day of our lives, we deliver speeches. But we just kind of we don't frame those speeches. We frame them as conversations, whether they're in a mm. coffee shop with our friends or whether they're just around a dinner table or whether, or they're just in general conversation. We are telling stories, which in my mind, a story is a speech. But yet we frame a speech and we picture Barack Obama up on stage delivering something which is kind of entrancing and enhancing and kind of inspirational. And we perceive that being a speech, and therefore we put ourselves against those, though we pitch ourselves against those type of speakers. 
rather than actually understanding that we all have a voice. And actually, as long as this, what we are talking about is something that we we believe in and we own that 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 content and own our voice, then we are going to be comfortable in our surroundings. So it's a move away. F- the, the, the concept about the fear of speaking is a move away to being fearful of the content we're delivering or the speech we're making, because actually that is just words that we should own because they're our stories. And how do we kind of, how do we put ourselves in a situation where we can take pressure away so we feel the audience in front of us is no longer a barrier to us delivering that speech and no longer are um, adversarial enemies or whatever we want to call it, and actually they want us to deliver a good time as much as we do. And that changing of the mindset is, to me, is, is the key criteria for anyone to be able to kind of conquer their fear of speaking. I think kind of I think we, we picture it as the worst thing in the world. We picture it as the biggest nightmare, and we kind of add whether kind of a big event when we know we're going to speak. We spend month, we spend hours panicking about it and write, writing and rewriting. But actually, it's not about that. It's about the understanding that every single person in that room, whether it's the smallest room of you with one other person or you in front of five thousand people, everyone wants a good time. Everyone wants to enjoy it. And suddenly, your mood changes, and you kind of embrace the situation rather than kind of think you're you're battling it yeah um there's lots of stuff in the book which i think can really help people to arrive at the point of giving a speech and feel much more confident but let's just talk about nerves specifically um one of the interesting things that i took from the book was how so many of the speakers who you interviewed still had nerves or still still got nervous and that was that was still a thing but just for anyone who just finds themselves shot with nerves, what can you do about it? I th- I, so, so the worst thing you can do with, when you when you have the nerves is firstly feel like you're alone because actually the person next to you who who you saw go on stage before you um, went on stage and was really really confident. You think, well, they didn't have nerves. Everyone has nerves. The yeah. truth, the truth is, you're putting yourself out there in a situation where kind of you are vulnerable. So but what you have to do is embrace those nerves and actually not feed them and not feed the nerves that not feed that feeling inside of you. So and I think I, and to me, the best advice kind of I talk about in the book and I, I believe in is the fact that in those moments leading up to the speech. Understand you've got it. You've got the speech. You've done the practice beforehand. The speech is not going to get any better by you rereading that speech for the 974th time. Actually, what is going to make the speech better is by you having a routine which takes yourself away from that moment. And I think mm. kind of, and, and what do I mean by that? It's something might be so simple as in you've practiced. Before I get on stage, my routine is I'm going to go to the toilet. I'm going to make myself a cup of coffee. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And it's really basic things. But it's just giving yourself some structure that takes you away from thinking, I don't know what to do with myself. I better reread my speech. It's not going to help you. It's just going to raise your um the shackles of those nerves again yeah there's a couple of things one thing i want to say about that actually is um i i often get you know you get into the dialogue with people where they're where they're trying to book you and and so on and sometimes you get into a thing where where someone will say something like what you charge that much for an hour of your time (laughs) right and it's like no i charge that much for a day of preparation a day where I'm probably not going to be able to sleep very well beforehand, the day where I'm traveling to the thing, and then a day afterwards where I've got the adrenaline dump of getting rid of the nerves. Like a, a, a good 
one hour keynote for me is at least like three days of my life. Right? But, but, Greg, but <laughs> I have I t- to look at it in that way. But what I, I kind of, but, and that's, I, can I say, I think I completely agree with you apart from what's interesting and what's challenged my mind over the last six months from a, from a, from a speaking perspective in this yeah. virtual world we're now in. It's this realization that actually um, it's even more than that. What they're actually paying for is the 30 years of experience and the stories that you've accumulated, which gives you the right to deliver that speech. That's really yeah, what they're paying for. Yeah. And the kind of, and, and the truth is kind of how you deal with it as a speaker is something that kind of you, it's something that you need to deal with it, but don't take away from the fact that they want you for your, they want you for your stories and for your thoughts and for your ideas. And they didn't come to you overnight. They didn't come mm. to you because you sat down and wrote that speech. When you were writing that speech, what you were doing was ordering and, um, Taking your stories and putting them in the right putting them in the right places to deliver that speech, so you can give the client the messages they are looking for, or the ideas they're looking for. Yeah, and I guess the other thing um, about that is that, yeah, that background and sort of honouring that preparation that goes into it, and the preparation isn't just writing the speech; it's it's often writing the book that then becomes the speech. You know, doing the research and all of that. And so, in a sense, as a speaker, you you know, you're in this um slightly strange situation where often let's say there's a year where you're very heads down and you're working on the book um and it's it it's a year if you're lucky right yes <laughs> last couple of books i've done have been long in that but then when you're going out and then and then talking about it it's almost like you've got to earn the money that you didn't earn the previous year because you were just kind of sat in your shed writing and i'm i'm about to go back into that um, you know, research and writing uh, mode for sure. One of the interesting things that I always find, for, especially with uh, professional speakers who or speakers who've been paid for their speeches, mm-hmm. is how they feel the different when they're doing a kind of a speech for the love of the speech or the love of the event, as opposed to a speech which they're being paid for. Whether they change their routines and they change how they write that speech um, or the effort they put in. I I, I don't even think I recognise those boundaries right like some like as in some as in sometimes I'm going to deliver something which I'm getting paid for and sometimes I've agreed to do something for free but in my head is always you know how am I going to get these ideas across and serve that audience so it doesn't really cross my mind like this is for x amount of money versus this is for free it like it just doesn't yeah it doesn't feel like that I'll tell you the one exception actually if I'm being really honest was I did a thing in the Middle East um earlier this year about a week before lockdown and I was like really like I was really panicking about the idea of a it getting cancelled mm. and b it not getting cancelled but me being stuck <laughs> yes. in the Middle East when I've you know got a kid back home and all the rest of it yeah. but yeah luckily I got home yeah and that one I did feel more pressured just because of the amount of money they were right. paying and 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 you know who the client was and everything like there was something yeah there, there was yeah like i can't really say okay. too much more about it but it was it was one where i really felt pressure based on who the audience right. was and and so it was mo- it was more who they were than the money but i think the money probably pay- played into okay. that too right it's like oh man they're they're paying me a lot to be here and they're they're looking after me really well like i better make sure every word really counts so i probably just changed my mindset a bit around that and do you th- and do you think you delivered a noticeably different performance or kind of uh, ultimately 
you're a good speaker and you deliver a good performance and kind of maybe it was just a different way you man- almost you managed your nerves around it because they're different yeah I think I was just a bit more nervous than I would normally yeah. be at the beginning I think once once you get and this thing with nerves isn't it I think once you get into the middle of a talk you you're not to say that you're, that you're not nervous but there's kind of like a sense of flow that I yeah. hit once I've started and I, I think kind of yeah. going, yeah. I think going back to your question earlier to me about the nerves, especially for those people who aren't the professional speakers and doing it every single day. I think that's, that, that is actually the critical thing. It's almost the, if you can get, if you can understand and appreciate and embrace the fact that those nerves are eventually because you have your con, because you understand your stories and your content, those nerves you have initially at the beginning of the speech and everyone has them at whatever level speaker you are, but actually, as you get further into something which you feel comfortable with, because you're telling, you're sharing your experiences and your stories, those nerves will turn into energy, and that energy yeah, will, is what will yeah. actually drive the room or drive the audience or wherever you are to to make it a truly memorable occasion. So, almost the critical thing is not to try and calm the nerves; is to actually embrace them and manage them so they can deliver you what you need, which is that adrenaline push to to create something magical. Yeah. Um, there was a couple of things, one from your book and one that I do that I thought might be worth just sharing with the audience. The one I do, and just someone told me this once and it sort of became a bit of a ritual for me, is that um, when you when your face smiles, it's a two-way process. So you can have a, a happy thought and you smile, but also if you just exercise your face to the point where you're smiling it releases happiness chemicals in your brain and it's like a two-way thing. So sometimes what I'll do is if I'm feeling nervous before a talk is I'll go to the toilets and just really aggressively smile in the cubicle. <laughs> Brilliant. So it's just a really stupid yeah. thing. And also if you're sat on the front row, you can do that sat down on the front row, right? No one's looking at your face at yes. that point. Apart from, apart from the host. A- <laughs> apart from the host or the compare who is just like, what is this guy? <laughs> what is this guy doing? But yeah, so that's one I'll do quite a lot. And then the one that I really liked from your book was the story about the top sportsman who you observed. And, you know, the, the, the story that you tell in the book is it didn't really feel like this top sportsman really needed the money. But when I saw them do a talk, they just seemed like they were absolutely shot with nerves. And the, you asked them, well, why do you do this then when you don't need the money? Do you want to do you want to? Yes. Uh, I mean, yeah, so I've been with this sports person um, earlier that week. And just before they went on stage, they ran off to the toilet um, and they, they just didn't seem that happy. But then they got on stage and they did really kind of they gave a great job and they got a standing ovation and it was great. And I thought, okay, as a one-off, whatever happens. And as it happens, I had another job with him. I think, I can't remember whether it was later that week or the following week. Um, and exactly the same thing happened. And I just couldn't work out. I was like, why is this guy, guy putting himself through this amount of nerves or this feeling when he doesn't really need to? I mean, he kind of, even in the sense of he didn't necessarily need the audience clapping at the end of it, because he was getting that, because he could have done just public appearances where he shook some hands. And he, I mean, he was at a high profile and kind of, so he was getting the love out there anyway. So I, I kind of, listen, I'm sometimes like, I, I'm very intrigued about stuff. So I asked the question, I said, what do you think? And he, he said, you don't understand. I'm, I, I was a professional athlete. And when you're in that, when you're in that stadium, just before your race begins, and you've got your heart pounding and you've got, and you're out there and you're kind of, and you're completely raw and kind of, it's just you. I, that is a feeling that you can't replicate. And this is the closest experience I can get to replicating the whole thing because it mm-hmm. just drives me and create and gives me, 
it just gives me a sense of power to overcome those nerves and achieve something when I do get that standing ovation at the end. And I do, it makes me feel good about what I'm doing. Um, yeah. And I think that's an immensely powerful thing over the fact that actually kind of however much we get nervous beforehand and whatever we learn, however, whatever tools we do in order to help us manage it, the reason kind of actually everyone should be embracing the speak the speaking world and actually kind of loving the gift to be given the opportunity to stand up and speak is there is no better feeling and the truth and again it comes back to the fact that when you are delivering that speech you've got a room full of people who are on your side and therefore unless you kind of unless something terrible happened you they are all going to give you a, a, a big round of applause at the end and you are going to feel really really good about yourself and what you've achieved yeah, and yeah. external validation is amazing yeah, you just reminded me of um, my worst speaking moment ever, <laughs> which I was, I think I was 22 or something. And my first job was to promote volunteering at the University of Birmingham. And at the time, there was all this money going into volunteering, particularly to promote youth volunteering. So even though mine was student volunteering, which doesn't necessarily always mean young, it was generally younger people. And I'd given this speech to... Um, some youth organizations and I, I was saying something along the lines of um, you know often the the uh, kind of reputation of volunteering is that it's it's all kind of uh, you know stuffy old people doing knitting and all this kind of stuff and actually like volunteering can be fun and it will be fun um, and you know we need to sort of rebrand it and stuff and then about a week later I had this other speaking thing and so that speech went went pretty well and then about a week later, I had uh, this other function, which was in the university, and it was bringing together all these community groups. And I was halfway through sort of delivering that line about how volunteering shouldn't just be about old people knitting. And then I, re- I as I was delivering it, I looked up and realized that in this case, all the audience were actually quite old. <laughs> and I suddenly had just this feeling of like absolute sinking, wanting the ground to swallow me up. And it was like, I really should have, I really should have, understood the audience here and uh, and done a bit more preparation and it was one of those where my job wasn't to be a speaker at that point my job was to was to coordinate hundreds of volunteers and I'd been running around you know all week and not even had a second to really think about this thing and I just thought oh well I did a talk last week so this is the same thing again right so I'll just I'll just deliver the same message again and uh, yeah how how wrong I was um but Luckily, I think because I was so young at the time, I think they they probably just cut me some slack just for you know he's he's new, he's trying. But it kind of comes back to my my key thing, which is you know something. People in the audience are always going to cut you slack. So how bad do you think that mistake was? <laughs> um, they don't they don't want to dwell on it yeah. because actually, yeah. I, like if you are if you are in that room and you're in the middle of a row listening to a speaker, like and there's nowhere to get out. And so you're stuck there. You're a captive audience. And actually what you want to do is enjoy yourself. So you'd rather kind of gloss over the bits which actually don't go as smoothly so you can just enjoy the moment rather than sit there and wishing the, the ground would open up for you. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that we can do to help with nerves before a talk. And I really like the bit in your book where you talk about some key questions to help people to understand what the message of a talk is. Do you want to talk about some of those questions? So uh, can I just take us, take us back a step before we get into the actual questions themselves and say I think the starting place for anyone in terms of the messaging and what they're going to talk about is they have to own the content. 
Yeah. And I think this is absolutely, and I think this is where, for me, the number one cause of nerves comes about. It's the truth is, when you're sitting with your friends or your family or whoever it was, and you're telling them a story, you don't kind of, you don't worry about, am I going to tell this story correctly? Is it going to be exactly as I want it to be delivered? Because it's your story and it's something that happened to you. And kind of, and, and, it, and actually, if you're, if, you're, if you're in a business meeting and you're talking to someone around the table about something that you, you've got going on, you don't worry about when you're talking about it that it might not be in the order it actually happened. You're telling a story which you own. And I think the starting place in terms of what the, what the speaker is trying to, what, what, what you should be doing when you're delivering that speech is to own your content is to own those stories so you can put yourself in the right environment. And I think kind of, and I do say this in the book, and I kind of, I, it's worth, worth saying it, and I do think in a business context, it's even more so, you should never be put yourself in a place where you are delivering a speech. And when I say a speech, it could be just in a meeting where, where what you're saying you don't 100% believe in. Mm. You, you it's, can, it's just so obvious. You just, you, you just find people out really quickly when, um, when that happens. Yeah, and you find yourself out really quickly because yeah. you just can't deliver it. I think kind of... I th- that to me changes everything about you inside of you because it, you, you can turn the whole thing to something which actually is it's part of yours. Yeah. Sorry. Um, so the first question you've got is um, how do you want people to feel? Yes. So you, you're a conductor of an audience and the audience is your um, other people in the room. And that, that question about how do you want people f- to feel is going to dictate about how you deliver that speech, about actually what your messages are. And about the emotion you're trying to, to get out of the whole thing, because remember, kind of, and I think, I, I, kind of, my, I suppose my catchphrase is very much around: it's a speaker understanding that they're not the stars; the audience is the stars. Yeah. And yeah. I th- again, it's that shift to understanding that what you kind of the best speech that kind of you could ever give, it's not how you perceive the speech to be; it's what people take when they leave that room. And so, how do you want them to make them feel? Is a great starting point for you when you are crafting those messages or crafting that story. Yeah. This is the thing I'd say to our think productive social media team all the time is we're not Luke Skywalker. We're Yoda. (laughs) And it's like the, the audience consuming our stuff, they're Luke Skywalker Walker. And our job is to give them those little nuggets that help them go on their, their magic journey. Right. Yes. And along the way, how they get there, they're going to make mistakes. Yeah. Um, and actually, that's part of their journey rather than you thinking to yourself, I control the, the journey they're on. Yeah. You don't. Um, the second one is, um, why should people listen to you? Yeah. Listen, I mean, you get on stage and you've been given, you've been given the platform to get on stage for whatever reason, or been given the chance to stand at the front of the room and deliver a business meeting. Or if you're at a wedding and you're the best man, been given the chance to give the best man speech. That doesn't take away from the fact that actually you should justify about why they should listen to you. And that's not about listing your credibilities or anything like that, but it's giving them the assurance that actually you are going to give them a good time, whatever that good time might be. Yeah. And there's what, I can't remember who it was, but you were talking about one, one of the case studies in the book is uh, someone who says the first two or three minutes of a talk is just about making sure that the audience is relaxed. Yeah. And just as long as they feel like, okay, I've got an hour with this guy, but actually it's all, you know, it's all kind of comfortable. Um, and maybe that was Lord Coe. Was it Lord Coe? Yeah, he, want, he, yeah. Yeah, he eases them in. Like kind of everyone, you come into that room, you're about to hear, kind of you're going to hear someone. And maybe this is even more true, kind of when you're in that, when you're in that meeting 
is the fact that mm. actually what everyone wants to do is just take a side breath and say, all right, this isn't going to be a horrible experience. Yeah. I, I kind of, I always, yeah. I almost kind of weirdly enough, counterintuitively, I always must always feel sorry for more high profile people because the expectation of the room is so much higher. Mm. Um, the, actually, the level they have to deliver at, they've got to be very, very, very good at the whole thing. Whereas actually, again, for those of us who aren't on stage the whole time and don't have that profile, actually, all we've got to do is reassure the audience that don't worry, we've got this. And yeah. they'll come with you on the ride. They're not looking yeah. for you to be that great orator, that Sebco, or whatever it is. Um, they're looking for you to someone who actually is going to give them, however long your speech is, kind of, an experience which actually they can learn from and they can develop from and and feel comfortable with. Mm. It sort of reminds me of, um, I did a keynote once where it was a part of a big staff conference thing. There's probably six or 700 people there. Uh, I won't name the company for reasons that will become <laughs> obvious. <Right. laughs> but uh, I walked in and it was in this conference centre and I was on about third in the morning. Um, so, you know, middle of the morning, I had about an hour, I think. And all the people who were on before and after me were literally stood up on the stage in a line, right? L- you know, like like Westlife or something. Right. But uh, literally just rehearsing like their lines. And so I had, so I walked into the room and there's like five different voices and the next room is like just yeah. all, all the stuff that they're going to say. And I think, and it it was it was so jolting and jarring that it's just it stayed with me. And and someone came up to me and said oh, but you're a professional speaker and you're an outsider, so you probably don't need to rehearse like that. And I, part of me was thinking, I haven't rehearsed it to that level of detail because <laughs> I never do. But also, it just felt like, there, like I think you can get so obsessed yes. with rehearsing every word that what you don't do is connect with the audience yes. and do the the bit where people relax and the bit where you know, you sort of create that space together as kind of slightly hippie as that sounds. No, no, but I don't think it is hippie at all. I think kind of the thing about being in a room with a bunch of people and delivering a speech is actually you're all together and the energy of that room, not the energy of you, but actually the room all together is what takes takes everyone to a a place where we're all having an experience. I think kind of... kind of one of the challenges the virtual speaker now has is how do you make that connection? Um, yeah. across a screen yes kind of at the beginning we, we were saying things like kind of everyone's got a front row seat and don't get me wrong it's amazing when you've got someone a kind of amazing speaker and actually you can see the whites of their eyes but you've got to break down the barriers and the, breaking mm. down the barriers naturally comes when you're in that room but actually it's a new challenge and, and it involves a different skill set um to do it across a virtual platform um and i think yeah. it's a really interesting thing that obviously as speakers get used to this how they react to it um and how they ch- and how they change their speaking style to cope with it is is something that people are learning as they go along. Yeah. Um, so back to your questions mm. on message. The third one um, I just thought was really interesting. Do you want the audience to do? You, do you want to be the person who's asking questions of the audience or answering them? Yeah. I think. Listen. I think. I think that's both kind of. This is the expectation of your audience and the expectation of yourself. Are you there to pose them ideas and thoughts which they're going to take away and, um, and use, or are you there to give them knowledge which will help them as a foundation in order to do that to do whatever they've got to go and do? Um, and you could, and I think kind of you can deliver both within a speech, but I think you have to be clear and you have to be signposting to the audience what they're getting from different areas, um, yeah. because I think 
without understanding that question, you, you've got a danger of not having clarity of your speech. For sure. There's also something really nice about that question, though, because I suppose the other part of it is it gives you that freedom to say, here are the things where I can add information and knowledge. And then also here are the things where I have I have a take, I have an opinion, um, but I don't necessarily think it's the only one or that I'm uh, in some sort of superior position of knowledge. So being able to sort of own that that freedom and that space in a way of, of being able to be the person with the prodding questions rather than necessarily yeah. the person with all the answers. I think is, I just think it's a really interesting. Absolutely. Uh, I, 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 and I think even uh, hopefully if kind of as people feel more and more comfortable speaking, even to, to the extent where you can pose a question without giving your opinion, because to leave people wanting more and to leave people wanting to have your opinion, it can, yeah. it can leave with yeah. them with something. It's like a cliffhanger at the end of episode seven or whatever you're watching on Netflix that evening. Um, and I think that's a really important tool which can be used. If you've established credibility and you've told them opinions about this, that, and the other, if you can just pose some questions, just some thought ideas, ultimately it, it, it has the capacity to elongate your speech in the memories and minds of people beyond actually the day because they will be thinking about something and they'll be desperate to find out from you. Um, and for those of, for those of you who, who write who put writers on it yourself, potentially that, is, that could be answered in the next book, which obviously makes your life very happy that's true yeah and then the, la- the last two bits on this um we can probably take together so one of them is what do you want the takeaways the key takeaways to be and then i really like the way you've summarized this is um if you're only gonna if you only had the time to give them three points or they're only going to take away three points what would those yeah. three points be i think i think i think the problem is and i i i free admit i've been guilty as anyone with this what we try and do is we try especially when you're given limited time to speak and you've got a lot to say about a subject, you try and cram in as much as possible. Just talk faster, right? Just talk faster. <laughs> That's the trait of my life. Um, and if you can distill that down, if you can distill it from the outset down to you to say to yourself, what do you want them to take away? Yeah. What, then actually everything, your entire speech will come from those three points. And don't be scared, not to be scared, don't, don't think you're giving them less by not giving them more stuff to take away. Mm. We're, we're kind of we try and pretend we're or maybe this is me i was going to say we try i try and pretend i'm super intelligent i'm really not i'm a very simplistic guy give me one piece give me one piece of information and one bit of knowledge and I, let me give me time to stew on it and really understand it rather than giving me 50 which is forgotten the next day yeah for sure it honestly took me years and years to recognize that the other the other little similar kind of how much content to put in a talk um tip that i got given years ago that i really like is when you're using slides just look at the number of slides and you should never have a higher number of slides than you have a number of minutes um so 45 minute talk no more than 45 slides and that includes every slide right so even the slide that says break or the slide that's the welcome slide those all count but um it's a bit like um you know you used to see it on tv sometimes where people talk about budgeting and it'd be when you go to the supermarket, count how many items, and then that's usually a rule of thumb. You know that number of pounds is that number of items, kind of thing. Can I can I add one more? I, one. I, I'm quite passionate about the subject of slides, but, and I won't launch into one. But I will say one thing, kind of in terms of the speech, is that if yeah. you, if you have the if you have those slides and you're using slides, and for whatever reason you are beforehand, practice your speech without the slides. Mm. Um, and I say that for two reasons. I say that firstly because it will take away that I, I do often see the nerves come because of the technology because of the risk of technology failure. 
So yeah. if you know you've got it without the slides, then you're going to be much happier. Also, ultimately, what you don't want to do is be talking to the slides. So by, do, by giving the speech without the slides, you know that actually you can be out there talking to the audience and the slides can support you rather than um, you being a sideshow to the slides. Yeah, yeah. What Have you got any advice for me? So I, I don't think I have the problem where I talk to the slides. I very rarely have text on slides. They're just images. Excellent. Um, and they're there to sort of, you know, back up and place hold and kind of give a visual stimulus to the point that I'm making rather than, you know, repeat all the things that I'm about to say yep. or, you know, me read them. But the thing for me is that I have a really terrible memory. And so the idea of, like, I I watch someone like Jimmy Carr, right, who not only is he on stage for an hour with no slides and, and no notes, but none of his ideas really fit together or sort of nothing follows the last one, right? Whereas, like, if you're a comedian that's telling long stories or, uh, you know, someone who's who's telling anecdotes, then it's easy to, to get the flow, isn't it? But I I watch Jimmy Carr sometimes and I just think, how on earth, or any of those, like, one-liner, Tim Vine, those kind of people, how on earth do you do that? Like, how how do you sort of have that memory? So is there anything you can say that would help me to to create structure so that I, you know, is there something else I can use instead of slides to, to sort of be that kind of memory jogger and, and kind of guide through the structure? So I think, I think I, there's two things I can say about that. And I think the second part linked to the first one. So the first part for me is anchor it, anchor it throughout your speech, whether you're speaking for five minutes or you're speaking for 45 minutes, understand there are kind of, the anchor points throughout the speech, and there might be only three or four of them, but you know at minute six you're going to deliver, you're going to get, hit this message, and at minute 12 yeah. you're going to hit this message. And then almost if you lose track, and bearing in mind when I say lose track, these are your stories and these are your content, and you're, you're delivering the speech as a co- kind of – it's a conversation. It might be a one-way conversation, but it's still a conversation. Therefore, the term losing track doesn't exist. All it does is you're meandering around a point. You're, do, you're doing what comedians do, which is you're getting to the point you're trying to get to. But how you got there, you're comfortable in your own skin that you can get there. And if you go slightly off, um, it's not the end of the world. And it's one of the kind of like sli- it's one of the great things about slides is because what they do is they keep you on the, they keep you in the direction that you're looking to go. Yeah. But actually, they don't give you the flexibility that we as human beings naturally do, which is if we're telling our stories, we go off on tangents and actually we draw them back into where we're looking to go. And, mm. and you, you, you fix that in by having set points at, set, at, key, at key time because that will help manage the time thing where you are looking to deliver that, that message so you are conscious about it and drawing back in. The other thing is kind of, you mentioned Jimmy Carr. This isn't kind of my story isn't around Jimmy Carr, but it's another well-known comedian I was with one evening and literally – about 30 minutes before he was getting on stage, he scribbled just words all over his hand. I was like, what yeah. are you doing? He said, I don't need it, but I know it's the safety of having these words about kind yeah. of on my hand. And whether that is on your hand or whether that is on a kind of a little piece of card or something like that, the slides can be the same as having one word. One word that triggers a story or triggers a message, but you just equate it. And it might have nothing to do with each other. It's just what equates it. I came up with this story and at the time I was making a cup of tea. So all I have is number one tea and that will automatically mm. take me down that place. Yeah. And there's that other thing, which is like the rule of three, right? Where, um, and threes in pyramids. So you deliver, you know, like beginning and middle and end is a, is a three, right? 
or this particular thing what what are the three things about this one and then move on to the next one and have have three of those and so you can kind of pyramid out from three things at the top to kind of nine things yes. below it and, and and so on yes and i think and i think kind of you'll keep you're putting in place patterns which actually sit naturally with your um with both your brain but also your the lyrics of your voice hmm. and i think a lot of great speakers use that rule of three, yes. right? three right so you know barack obama used it a lot um tony blair's thing where he said you know the most important thing, the three most important things to me, education, education, education. education. Yeah. I mean, just like such a genius little slogan that people still talk about yes. years later. And it's it's just just classic rule of three, right? I, I, I remember writing, I wrote an article or kind of a blog about the rule of three at, at the peak of um, Barat's um, kind of speech, speeching, speeches. And it's throughout history. It's, mm-hmm. it's it kind of, it both sits comfortably with the... Um, with the speaker, but also with the audience, because it gives it gives three different messages, but which we can grasp in one go, but also can be delivered and actually sit together so nicely and flow so well. Um, and there's, there are various kind of psychological studies about why that why the rule of three works so well, and it's kind of it's a natural thing. Yeah, um, I want to talk about a little bit about preparation, and then we'll move on towards the end and just talk about. About you a little bit and your own productivity and, and how you work. Um, so preparation, there's so much to discuss here. Um, and, you know, you touch upon some really interesting stuff in the book that was quite reassuring to me because a, a lot of it is stuff that I'm like, oh, yeah, no, I definitely do that and I do that. There was one thing, though, that um, I thought was such a great question, which is if you're giving a, a talk or let's say you're giving a presentation to your board or uh, a team in your organization is to talk to someone on that team or whoever the sort of client is, whatever the situation is and ask them what the criteria is for measuring success yes. of your talk. Yes. And I just thought that's such a good question. And I don't think I am in the habit of asking it. So do you want to just say a bit more about that? Cause it just, it really struck me as a, a really important point. I think, I, I think I find it fascinating that how we judge whether a speech is good or not. Um, and actually that's our impression of what we've delivered and actually the audience reaction to it. But realistically, your, your stakeholders are the people who've said to you, can you stand up on stage or can you be in that post meeting and deliver this because we're trying to get this message across? And I think having clarity of what you're trying to get across and what you're trying to achieve out of this is something that will enormously help you when you are writing that speech or when you're preparing your thought. But also it will massively help you when you go and speak to your stakeholders afterwards and actually have the conversation about whether you delivered what they were looking for you to deliver. Because yeah. quite often, and I, th- I kind of listen, I kind of, and this stems from, for me, from the fact that it amazed me the amount of events that happen. And you say to them, well, what's the purpose of the event? And the purpose of the event is to have an event. We do this every year. We've got to do it again. <laughs> um, and then it's like, oh, well, okay. Well, then realistically, what you're looking, you don't really kind of, the speaker you're looking, you don't really mind about the speaker as long as literally they can open their mouth and tell a story because, yeah. because you've succeeded it by getting kind of, you're getting all those people in the room or on the Zoom or whatever it was. And, and to me, kind of as a speaker, that should really disappoint. And that should be, well, I, I'm not going to achieve anything. I can tell that story, but it's not actually achieving anything. So by asking the question up front, it's a demonstration also that you are in, you have a vested interest in giving your stakeholders 
or kind of, and that's very business speak, but your people around you, actually what they really want out of the whole thing. And quite often it was, it's a question which they wouldn't have really considered because kind of their immediate thought, well, we want a bunch of happy people. And, and kind of, and in my view, everyone should be able to leave an audience feeling happy or kind of, when I say happy, feeling kind of having some emotion at the end of the speech. The question is actually, what do they want beyond that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in the last 10 minutes or so, I just want to get on a, onto a couple of um, very standard, beyond busy, fair kind of <laughs> themes. And then um, one of them that just struck me is, so you talked at the beginning about how you had a couple of companies during the dot-com boom that were doing really well. And then, you know, they valued very highly at one point, And then that valuation was was cut drastically during the the crash. And of course, you know, the year that, that the speaking industry and the events industry has just had with with COVID, um, you know, feels like there might be a parallel there. So I, I'm just interested to know what your reflections are across your career, just about highs and lows and how you've how you've dealt with highs and lows. I think the starting place is kind of is my feeling that actually I want to enjoy myself. Why did I go back to start? a new business is actually I went in there primarily and I know it's a very f- f- trite thing to say I say but I went there to enjoy myself and have a smile on my face and actually enjoy the roller coaster journey I knew I was going to go on um so even right at the beginning and for the speaking industry kind of effectively fell off a cliff kind of in, in March when lockdown happened because suddenly all events were cancelled um yeah. and we had to take kind of action and actually a lot of it kind of it was tough and it was hard but at the same time I kind of, for my team, for myself, it was, kind of, it was a very open journey. So for those people, kind of, for, for whatever everyone experienced, we were doing it all together. And actually, kind of, I, I, I think the best way to describe it is that in the, lead, in, the, in the days leading up to the lockdown, when we all knew it was going to happen and we'd already seen if, and we were, we were dealing every day with tens of events being cancelled, kind of as it built up, um, Literally, my kind of my person who ran the day to day, she turned kind of we we're coming in together one day. She turned to me, she said, "I don't understand, Nick. You are the most miserable person of all time. All you do is have <laughs> walk around the office, kind of with a farrow brow and all that sort of thing. Yet you've been coming in the last few days, kind of, and you've been smiling, and you've got, it's like a massive weight's been lifted off you." And I said, "Yeah," because I said, to her, "Well, I suppose here's the thing: is actually like when I when I'm in the office and I see kind of what we can be doing better, I take personal responsibility over the fact that." It's my, I've let you guys down because I haven't given you the necessary tools, whatever it was, in order for us to be delivering amazing service to our clients. So I feel that myself. Whereas actually mm-hmm. at the beginning of the pandemic, kind of throughout this entire thing, this, whatever we would have done, we couldn't have impacted what was going on out there. So it's yeah. like, this is not my responsibility. Yeah. And therefore I'm just kind of, I've got, I've got to go, I'm going to go along for the ride. And don't get me wrong, yeah. I'm not being flippant about this. I'm not saying that I didn't have many dark moments and continue to have dark moments. I mean, it's really not enjoyable at all. But it was like, it's that fact that actually there's some sort of relief over this was not, this is not because we did something badly. Um, yeah. And I think that's kind of, and maybe that does come from the first, um, the, the kind of the dot-com crash, kind of for those who remember it ultimately, it was kind of, we all knew it was going to happen. And maybe in the pandemic, we didn't know it was going to happen. We all knew it was going to happen. But that doesn't mean that it was our fault that it happened. And therefore, mm. you kind of, you deal with it when it's there rather than worrying about what could I have done differently. Yeah, there's something about the the ego that we attach to decision-making, right? Yeah. How 
often the stress that you feel around a decision is to do with how how the results of that decision will leave you being perceived. Yeah. And I mean, very frivolous and, and, and sort of different example. But a few years ago, I did this whole year of extreme productivity experiments. And one of them was to make decisions by the throw of dice. Okay. And the idea was, was to sort of take on this mantra that, you know, any decision is better than indecision. And so just, if you're stuck, just come up with two or three or six different options, throw the dice and then just follow it. And so I thought it'd be a really good thing to just reduce procrastination. But I think my biggest learning was the fact that it felt really freeing. It was like, well, yeah. that was the dice's decision. It wasn't mine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it just yeah. allowed in a, in, a, in a similar kind of way, you know, it's like, whatever we do, we can be responsible for doing our best right now in this circumstance. Yes. But and, and I think, if we don't hit targets, it's kind of, it's not our fault yeah. really, is it? You know, I think, I think the, absolutely. And I think the key thing for me was the fact that I was very, very, very transparent to, to the whole team. Mm. Um, yeah. And it meant for the sizable, kind of we had to let people go, unfortunately, and we kind yeah. of had to do with stuff. But for the sizable majority, there were, there were no surprises. In fact, they even kind of, there were kind of their time saying, thank you for being, for taking us to the journey and being honest all the way through. Um, and I think that's what we could control. And that kind of, it meant that, it meant that we were in it together, which is a big thing. Mm. It kind of, and like they all knew, they could, all could see what was going on because they were dealing with the cancellations. They were dealing with this, that, that, that. So there was, there was nothing to hide. Um, and that meant that it was a shared experience, however horrible it was. Um, yeah. Or it is a shared experience, however horrible it is. And I think that, I think that's what I really, and I, I don't know, but that's what I took and that's how we've been dealing with it the whole way through. Um, so, so when you sit back in five years' time with, with your feet up by the fire and you remember the, the COVID crisis of 2020, is there like one thing that will stick in your memory as a, as a highlight or low light? I think that's I th- – so, okay, so it's a really interesting question. I think the low light, which possibly might also be the highlight, um, is a conversation I had quite early on. Um, again, mm. it seems to be a conversation I had quite early on where I can't remember how it came about, but I was with one of my, I was with one of the team and it was, I think it was coming to the end of lockdown, but we were in the office cause we had an event. We had to do a virtual event and therefore we were doing some filming or something like that. Um, and again, excuse me, but kind of for not remembering exactly, but the conversation went about like how I felt at that time and kind of, um, what my biggest fear right then was and whether the business was going to survive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I turned to the point, I said, no, actually, my biggest fear out of this is that we don't kind of both, as, and this is both for our business, but also for society as a whole and kind of for the events industry and everything like that, that actually, as it does come back, as it kind of as it does come back, as kind of as the world returns to whatever it's going to become, that we haven't learned anything from what's happened over the last six months. And still, that's, I suppose that's my biggest fear, is actually we've seen kind of, we, we've been challenged as individuals, as businesses in terms of purpose and in terms of um, what we hope to achieve. And I kind of, I flippantly say, we've all been sitting, sitting at home during lockdown and kind of, we haven't been able to go out and suddenly actually the fact that you've got that little bit of kind of the fact that you haven't, haven't spent that money that weekend that you would usually spend. It meant that the, that, that hasn't got as much relevance. What you really want is you want that little bit of kind of, free time or work-life balance or whatever words we want to use around it and the fear for me is that we just slip back because 
the pressure of life gets gets to us and we go back where we are. And then the flip yeah. side of it, I think the best thing could happen is actually we, we learn these lessons and we find some compromise. Because I don't think, I think kind of almost we are at a stage right now of the other extreme, which is everyone, no one ever wants to go back to work again and everyone wants to just be at home and lead their own lives. And there has to be some balance. There's going to be some settling of everything. And hopefully us as, us as a society can take ourselves to a better place. Uh, I know that's a big kind of thing to say, but I do, I do worry a lot that we won't learn. That's the thing. It feels like one of the big themes through 2020 has been the idea of, you know, focusing on what's really important, remembering what matters, you know, and, 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 and really a kind of chance to take a step back and question how we do stuff. And obviously the title of this podcast is Beyond Busy. So I suppose the final uh, question that, that leads on from that is, do you feel like, do you feel like your relationship with busy will be the same um, as, as we sort of get back to a post COVID vaccine world of normal? Um, and what do you think is the best way for you to, to kind of healthily manage your own relationship with busy? So I, I do, I think I will stay, I will still be busy. I think the answer is yes, but I think, I think how I'm, how I, how I rank what I want to be busy with is going to change. And I think, mm. um, I think one of the, and I was talking just today about it with my team, about the fact that one of my biggest fears is kind of, not my biggest fears, but one of my concerns is the fact that actually, hopefully, if as business starts picking up and we, we are looking to recruit in 2021, me conquering my nerves about the next pandemic. Now, bearing in mind, this is a once in how, in how many hundred years type of event, why have I got those nerves over the fact that could something come along tomorrow and drop everything off? Um, and until, unless I conquer those nerves, then my fear is in terms of busyness is the fact that I, we end up running the business on a streamlined thing, which doesn't give me the capacity to make my choices about um, how, I, how I rank what I'm going to be busy doing. Is that like a scar from this year? Yes, that it'll, it's, a hundred, it'll, it's, a, it's 100%. Yeah. It's a scar from this year, and it, it, it kind of, which I know is an irrational scar. But I, mm. I, 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 I worry about it is because of the irrationality of it. What is going to make me inside just feel like, okay, kind of, we, we need kind of, I had a good, whatever we want to call it, busy life, which I was satisfied and comfortable in back last year or beginning of this year. COVID hit, the pandemic hit. We've now gone beyond it. I'd like to get back to that. But I don't want to go through the pain of kind of, of what we've been through over the last six months yeah yeah and it's, a, it's, well, a, it's a rational but it needs to be it needs to be done yeah and you know i mean this is one of the things i often say in in talks around productivity which is the only thing that unites us is that humans are weird right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, and what's funny is that you already you're already labeling that as irrational and you know we all do this right we have things that are that we've labeled as irrational but it's still we can't out logic um, ourselves with that stuff. Even like even the even the irrational things, you know, stick in our brain when we know they probably shouldn't. So yeah, um, yeah, really interesting. Um, yeah, I feel like we should probably revisit this conversation in a year and uh, and and see see how that scarring is and and if you've managed yeah. to conquer it. I'd, I'd, um, I'd love to. Yes, absolutely. 
But just to say, Nick, just really great to have you on Beyond Busy. Um, tell us where people can get in touch with you and get hold of the book and anything else that you want to share. So kind of, you can find me at Speakers Corner. Kind of my email address, please, please contact me, is nick at speakerscorner.co.uk. Happy to talk about the world of speaking or if you're thinking you want to be a speaker or if you'd like to book a speaker, please do get in contact with us. Um, the book is out next week. Very excited about it. Hopefully kind of, it's going to appeal to everyone because it gives you just some, as, as Graham, you kindly said, some great tips about how you can manage yourself to, to be an amazing speaker because we can all be it. I can't stress that enough. Um, available at all good bookshops and on Amazon. I've never, never thought I'd be saying that, but there we go. Um, <laughs> but hopefully it's a good read. Ultimately, it's got a kind of, I was privileged to interview with some amazing, amazing speakers and people um, who share their, who share kind of knowledge and, um, and it's amazing how kind of all speakers, however famous or whatever they are, they all they all experience similar things and deal with them in different ways, which is what comes out through the book. Yeah. And I mean, I I could just say as a speaker as well, like it's really practical. And it I was kind of picturing someone on a train on their way to do a talk. And it's the kind of book that you could put just in your bag and take with you or just have in the car with you. And then it's there as your little comfort blanket, yes. right? Like you can just open it up and just find little nuggets that will help you on every page but it's very accessible thank you um, i think that's what really i was trying to read that's so, yeah. very much what i've tried trying yeah. to get out it's kind of it's actually the least important thing is the structure and the english and the everything else the most important thing is you're comfortable in yourself and you can stand up and kind of and pretend that you're in in the pub with a friend and having a good, and having a good time yeah for sure so yeah definitely benefits from the wisdom of all of your many years working with with lots of top speakers so um yeah uh, congratulations on it again thank you so much Dean. thank you for allowing me to come on with you it's been a lot of fun so there you go nick gold and it feels a bit nostalgic listening to that doesn't it the idea of people doing events in rooms and all that sort of thing one day we will all be together again hey it's coming it's coming a couple of thank yous i've got to thank riz my producer on the show not only for producing this episode but for the recent transition into our world of youtube as well which i'll talk about more in a minute uh, but riz has just put in some some really solid hours over the last couple of weeks in dedication to beyond busy so just want to say a massive thank you to riz uh, and the whole team actually have really uh, pulled together around Beyond Busy over the last uh, few weeks. So really uh, grateful to be working with you all. And Think Productive, our sponsors for the show. So if you want productivity, training and coaching, if you want us to come in and help your team, we have a whole range of workshops, including things like getting your inbox to zero, how to fix meetings, uh, working from home. We've got a whole range of stuff that will really help. So go to thinkproductive.com and you can find out more there. I want to say thank you to everybody who reached out after the Seth Godin episode last week. Um, felt like a really big one. It landed really well. Um, as you can imagine, just Seth is just full of, uh, you know, value bombs and, and just really lovely, pithy little quotes and stuff. People really appreciated it. So um, I, I love doing it and had so many lovely re- reactions to it. So just want to say thank you to everybody who uh, dropped me emails and DMs and WhatsApps and whatever after last week. And if you want to sign up for my weekly email, it's called Rev Up for the Week. The idea is every week I send you a positive or productive idea for the week ahead. 
comes out every Sunday evening and you can sign up by going to graymalcock.com forward slash links and there you'll find uh, links to Revit for the week, links to the podcast, links to my relatively new still uh, book which is called How to Have the Energy and lots more stuff so just graymalcock.com forward slash links and yeah, uh, final thing I'm going to say today is we try and keep this podcast free and free of advertising we want to bring as much value and as little interruption as possible um, but it does cost money and it costs a lot of effort and uh, there's a lot of emotional labour that goes into making these. And we don't ask for any payment in return. But what I would love is for you to just uh, help us out here with a couple of things. So if you're not subscribed to the episodes, please go to your podcast app and just subscribe. That would just make our day and uh, it really help us to get our subscription numbers up. So uh, just go to your podcast app, subscribe to be on Busy there. And even if you are going to continue listening to these on audio rather than video, I'd love you to just go to YouTube and subscribe to my channel on there. So the channel is just called Graham Alcott. It's basically brand new. We've got a handful of subscribers on there. The views are starting to go up for the Seth Godin episode, but it's all on there. So subscribe to the Graham Alcott channel. Give the Seth Godin episode um, a view on there, a like on there, a comment on there. And that would just really help. So we don't want your money, but we'd love you to just support us in that way. Um, and of course, uh, if you want to share this with other people who you think would find it valuable, that would mean a lot to us as well. So please forward this on. Uh, send the episodes to people that you think uh, would be really helped by them, and that would just help us too. That's it for this week. We'll be back next week with another one. And wherever you are, I just want to say, if, if you're in the UK then uh, yeah just stay warm and stay safe and uh, we're nearly through this thing right it feels like a lot of people are really struggling right now so stay safe safe and warm and uh, not long to go now (laughs) we're coming through the other side it's happening spring's here so uh, that's what I want to say at the end so we'll see you next week until then take care bye for now